Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be reading in verses 1 through 6 this morning in God's Word. I'll tell you about a guy named Roger Nicole. Roger, it's a great name, Roger. No one, no one names their kid Roger anymore, and I think they should, we should bring that back. That back. Roger was a seminary professor, Reformed Theological Seminary, where Meredith and myself went to, to school. And for the Reformed Seminary world, he's like our version of the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. He, um, here, here's some ways. He was, he was incredibly interesting. He taught at Gordon-Cromwell Seminary up in Boston. Uh, and then ultimately at Reform Seminary in Orlando. Here's some ways in which he was, he was a very interesting dude. He was born in a German prisoner of war camp during World War I. His father was a chaplain to French prisoners of war. He grew up in a mixture of German, Germany, uh, Switzerland, and France, and could speak all the various languages that were spoke there. He had an amazing accent, as one would expect one would have if you grew up in such an international environment. He called everyone brother and sister, which is odd because I think most of us think of the idea of calling somebody brother or sister as a mere church southernism, but it was actually it's a, something that even, yes, a guy from a, born in a German prisoner of war camp with a Swiss accent, uh, he used that as well. He took a 15-minute nap every single day after lunch, like clockwork. Uh, he didn't need anybody to wake him up. He would snort himself to sleep and then snort himself awake. His eyebrows spoke volumes. They were the kind of older man eyebrows that kind of reached for the heavens and had a pointiness to them. He earned two doctorates, one of them being from Harvard. And these, some of you might find these next two a little bit more interesting. One he had a postage stamp collection of over one million stamps. One million. In fact, he had one of the greatest uh, collection of stamps in the whole world. And, and here's where we're going to segue this morning, he had a library of over 50,000 books in his basement. 50,000 books. Ultimately, he would donate 20,000 of those books to Reform Seminary. It would make up more than half of the Reformed Theological Seminary Library. Just 40% of his library made up over half an entire seminary's library. Now, that is interesting in and of itself, but here's what is even more bizarre about it. A full 6,000 of those 50,000 books that he owned were mystery novels. 6,000 detective stories. This man was obsessed with detective stories, whodunits, mysteries. He couldn't get enough. You know what I'm talking about, Sherlock Holmes, Perot. There's, you know, depending on your generation, you have your detectives of your sorts. Whether it be Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys, that was my generation. I have no idea what it is for you who are millennials or younger. Why was Roger so interested in mystery novels? Well, I think, one, I think they, just, they incite just excitement in us, the longing to find out about things that, that, are, that are hidden to become into the light. We love the idea of, it's the idea of someone receiving justice, of things that were once hidden, of people who were getting away with evil suddenly being brought to the light. 
This is actually a very Christian concept, this idea of darkness being brought into the light and receiving justice. Actually, one theologian named Robert Paul, who uh, talked about, is a theologian of literature, he said this, detective fiction mixtures are a uniquely Christian kind of literature. Now, Roger Nicole was not the only one who was fairly um, obsessed with mysteries. The Apostle Paul seems in this passage to be quite interested in them as well. Mystery is at the center of our passage this morning. So let's read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and you will see the mystery here that's being revealed. Here's what it says. Hear God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, as opposed to I, Andrew, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my, read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. What is a mystery? A mystery. I think we have some sense of a, an inherent understanding of what we're talking about when we say mystery. But mystery is a word that conjures up for most of us movies and books, right? Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, Nancy Drew. In general, a mystery is something that we either used to or do not currently fully understand or grasp. A truth, something, an objective truth out there that was once hidden from us or that has now been revealed to us. A mystery then is a truth, for example. Here's a truth from a board game. You may know this board game. The truth is that the murder was committed by Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. But that, mis- that truth was a mystery throughout much of the game. It was concealed. You couldn't see it. There were clues. That's why the game is called Clue. There were clues. There were foreshadowing of the truth that was ultimately revealed in the game. But the fullness of the truth has not yet been revealed up to now. And that is what Paul is saying. There is, there is something about in the Old Testament, there has been a truth about God's redemptive plan in which we saw, we had clues of it in the Old Testament. And there was foreshadowing of it in the Old Testament. There were signs of it coming, but we don't have the fullness of it yet until now. Until now. They wanted to know in the Old Testament, they understand that God is going to save. They understood that generally. God's going to do something, but what and how? The nations are going to be blessed. How are the nations going to be blessed? See, Paul says this mystery has now been revealed. Verses 3 through 5. How how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. He says, I've written this briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known in the past to the sons of men, but has now been made known. They didn't necessarily understand it fully in the Old Testament. It was the objective truth of the mystery was still there. God's plan was at work in the Old Testament. They just hadn't fully understood it completely yet. So it was not known, but now it is known. That which was concealed, 
That which was indiscernible in the past has now been made clear. And here is something that has always been laying there. It's been laying there. God says he foreordained, he predestined us from when? Before time. This plan of redemption has always been there. And we're simply reading, seeing the clues. And it's unfolding the mystery of God so that we can see it more clearly. And now that it has been unwrapped, this mystery has been revealed. Now that Detective Paul and the Detective Peter and the revealing of Christ Jesus has happened, we get to stand back and go, oh, oh, that's who did it. That's how it happened. That is the mystery. You see, that's how often the experience of when you read a mystery novel or watch a a mystery movie, right? At the end, the, the experience is often this. Well, if you're not one of those people who's always like, yes, you ever, you ever been with that one of those annoying people who watches a detective movie and they just go, I knew the answer from the beginning. And you're like, would you be quiet? No, you didn't. Or at least let me think that my ignorance was, was not because I'm not as bright as you. No, here, here's what, when, when God reveals, when we see mysteries revealed, we, we, what's our response? We go, oh my goodness, I would have never guessed that that's who did it in a million years. I would have never guessed that this is what God was doing in the world. Can you believe this? We would never guess that this is how God was going to bring redemption about in our lives. I never saw that coming. That's the response that Paul wants us to have. God's redemptive plan was and is stunning. And so what is so stunning about this mystery that has now been revealed? I'm going to give you two things this morning, two main headings. First, the revealed mystery is stunning because of who because of the who of God's redemption. What's so stunning about God's redemption? Who is redeemed? That's what's so stunning. What is the mystery? Well, it is clearly stated in verse 6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise. This is the clearest definition. Paul talks about the mystery in numerous places in his, in his letters to the various churches But this is the clearest definition of the mystery that Paul provides in all of his letters. The inclusion of the Gentiles is at the heart of this mystery. Now the Gentiles being blessed blessed, and all the nations being blessed in some way has long been spoken about in the Old Testament. It is no surprise that the nations are going to be blessed. When God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and actually sets apart apart Abraham and his family and ultimately Israel as being unique and distinctive in this world as his people, he says from the very beginning of their calling, he said, I am blessing you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. The idea of the nations being blessed is not new in the Bible, but how they're going to be blessed is what is the mystery that's now been revealed. The question remained, how is Abraham and Israel going to bless the nations and the Gentiles? And Paul is saying that what it meant for the Gentiles to be blessed was that they would become not half citizens, but full members of the kingdom of God, saved from all of God's wrath, and they will receive the same inheritance as all the people of Israel, all of God's people. They don't come in as half-breeds of God. They come in as full members of God's people. Therefore, all those promises, he's saying, in the Old Testament of land, of children, of an inheritance, these things are not simply true for the Jew, but they're true now for the Gentile in Christ Jesus. And the key word I want you to see here when it talks about the Gentiles, it says that they're fellow heirs. 
and they're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the same promise. You can't see it in the English, but in the, in the Greek, it's actually quite clear. Each one of these phrases, for example, fellow heirs, is one word in the Greek, not multiple. And it begins with this prefix, su, and then the idea of members of the same body is one word, and it begins with the prefix, su, and the partakers of the promise is, has the prefix, su. That word, su, in the Greek means same, same. So the images here, we, are, we have the same inheritance, and we have the same body, and we have the same promise. That's what he's saying. Gentiles and Jews are the same. We all have the same father. We are adopted, it's saying. We are heirs. We receive the same inheritance. We are the same body. The indwelling spirit makes us one new body in Christ Jesus. Jesus said there would be one flock and one shepherd, and he would be the one head. In fact, this word here for the same body is, this, is Paul's making up a word. He's saying you're going to become same body did. He's making a verb. This is what God is doing. He's making you into one body, and we have the same promise. The same promise. You're partakers on all the same hope, the same promises of God. In fact, it says this in Romans 15, verses 8 through 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's Jews, that's long form and very visible, visual form of saying Jews, to show the true God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, again Jews, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul's saying that there are Gentiles, they get all the same stuff that, that was promised in the Old Testament. They get land, they get righteousness, they get access to God just like Jews do. They are quite simply put the same. The same, the same. Now, it is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that this, this notion is foolishness to the Gentiles and it's a stumbling block to Jews because the Jews like this idea of sameness. Absolutely not, right? Forgive, I'm gonna point to something that's offensive as a means of showing why this was offensive to Jews. When little boys look at each other and they, a little boy does something foolish, what do they say? You are like a girl. In which to, they're saying, this is something I'm going to tell you that's offensive to you. You're a little boy, but you're acting like a girl. Now, we know that's a compliment <laughs> if you're erudite and progressive but and truthful. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you're the same. This would be so offensive to the Jewish people. As Ben articulated a number of weeks ago, he talked about the differences and how much Jews and Gentiles hated each other. But now what Paul is saying, Jews and Gentiles alike have not become, it's not Jews joining or Gentiles joining Jews to create a new or a better political Israel. No, they are becoming a whole new race. John Calvin didn't simply talk about the five points. He said this about the church. He said there are three races in the world. There is Jew, there is Gentile, and there is the third race called the church. And if you're part of the church, you are neither Jew, you are not Gentile. This depiction of union in Christ is a new internationalism. Before the UN was ever created, we already have it going. Across language, national, and racial lines, and we see this in the marching orders from the Great Commission, go therefore to all nations, all peoples, 
and all the way to the fulfillment in Revelation, where all nations will join together and be a part of the church. There, the inclusion of the Gentiles is so complete that in God's eyes, there is no more Jew and there is no Gentile anymore. You are simply one who's connected to Christ or you are not. Paul's saying that all other identities in the world are swallowed up into this identity. This identity that I am a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And we knew it a couple weeks ago that we are being built together. He's bringing us all together so that we would become a dwelling place for God. Now, what's been very important, again, we're going to get grammatically nerdy, but that word dwelling place for God is not multiple dwelling places where each of our homes are a dwelling place for God and each of us individually are a dwelling place for God. That word dwelling place is singular, one home. There is one God, and he has one home, and that home is the church. Therefore, the church is not an extracurricular activity you participate in when you have margin in your life. It has not come subservient to your kids' soccer, or to your academic schedule, or to your love of sports, or to any, your, even, yes, your biological family. It is not an extracurricular activity you participate in when you have margin. It is core and central to your life. You know, you know George Barna, the, the, the guy, the statistician for the church, the official statistician for the church in, in evangelical America said this, said that the most amount of what Christians say about the church is this. It can be summarized in this way. Most Christians say this, I don't need the church because the Christian life is about me and Jesus. I am the church. You are not the church. You are not the church. You are saved into the church. You don't get Jesus without the church. You get Jesus, but you also get the church. If you don't want the church, you don't get Jesus. They come hand in hand. It is his bride. It is his bride, and he is the husband. The importance of this can be even further articulated in a passage we didn't read this week, but we will read it next week. In verse 10, it says this of Ephesians 3, so that through the church, talking about this Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the manifold made known, the mystery is made known. This mystery of God's redemptive plan that he is going to save all the nations and bring them into as one people, subservient to his rule and his lordship and his salvation and his one kingdom. That redemptive plan is made known not just to the world around us, but actually, what does it say? To the angels in heaven, what God is up to. In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, it actually says this mystery of what God is doing in redemption is something into which it says, literally it says the angels peer into it. As if the angels in heaven are looking down into God's creative world and going, oh, that's what he's doing. That's his redemptive plan. And the place where they see it, that redemptive plan is in the church of Jesus Christ. The history of the church is the unfolding of God's story that the angels in heaven are enjoying seeing. They're looking into the mystery of God. Therefore, the church is not a voluntary organization that exists to provide spiritual amenities for those that attend. This is not the spiritual mall, but it is a vital part of revealing the mystery of God's plan to the world and even to the angels in heaven. I've said this multiple times in the course of this, looking at chapter two through four, This idea, we've been focusing on the church, the church, the church. You're here, I mean, we are just like, boom, boom, boom. We are browbeating you. I mean, Andy even like preempted this whole thing, right? 
this morning during family time. This is important, and it's important because this is a part of our evangelistic work, our proclamation of the redemptive beauty of God's plan to the world around us and even to the angelic beings, the church. We are a picture. We are an embodiment of what God is doing in the world. That's what we are, a drama, a picture to the world of God's redemptive plan. Now, did you... Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Did you know why in, the, uh, in medieval churches, why they had stained glass windows everywhere? You ever been in an old church and along the sides and there's those stained glass windows? We often almost think of it as being kind of, they're kind of like, oh, that's nice. That old kind of, that's really ornate and beautiful. Why did they have those? Was it just a way for the church to spend a lot of money? No, because for the vast majority of the history of the church, people were what? Illiterate. And how do you learn things when you are illiterate? Pictures. Pictures. And therefore, what the church wanted is that when someone, especially when you actually preach in Latin and nobody knows Latin, that's kind of difficult too, but when they come into the church and they see pictures of the gospel that surround you so that you could come in the church and be like, oh, that's what he's doing. That's what he has accomplished We are to be the stained glass window to the world. We are the picture of what God is doing in redemption. And what is he doing? Let me remind you again. What is he doing? He is taking all the relational unraveling that's been happening since Genesis 3, all that muck relationally, all the division and the lack of peace and the brother killing brother and the slandering of one another, and he is putting it all back together. We are called to embody the stunning truth of God's plan of redemption to reconcile all people, to heal relationships, to restore families. And the picture of the healing of all things, this lifelong historic, is when lifelong historic enemies come together like Jew and Gentile, or when people who simply have, when extroverts and introverts can function in the same church. God's relational healing power is going to be demonstrated to the world through the church. We've been, why, the reason why we're beaten away at this is because Paul beats away at it for three chapters. Three chapters. At the core of his book, this book. The church is important. Is it important to you? Now, let me ask you this. The stained glass window idea. Are we a perfect picture? No, we're actually like shattered pieces of the stained glass window on the floor half the time, aren't we? No, we are a marred picture with cracks and fissures throughout, but the picture of God's work can still be seen. There was a sort of the story of a, of a pastor who was talking to a, a woman about um, going to a family reunion. And she was sharing this is what they were going to be doing the coming weekend. And it wasn't her family. It was her husband's family. And, and the pastor was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Aren't family reunions the worst? You know, thinking he was commiser- commiserating with her. And the woman said, yeah, there are some crazies in the family. Yeah, the church has those too, right? And there is certainly some dysfunction The church has its family dysfunction, don't we? But I love going to family reunions. You see, I didn't grow up with a family, and so I like to go because it gives me some picture, at least some picture of how things are supposed to be. Listen, we are not a perfect picture. God is not done with us, but we are some picture of how things are supposed to be. That is what the church is. And Paul knew, understand when he said this, Paul knew how screwed up the church was. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians you know what 1 Corinthians is about? Church discipline, because one man is sleeping with his father's new wife. He knew the church was messed up. That's why he keeps having to write all these letters. That's why there's so many of them. Hey, guys, 
you're not getting the gospel yet and you're not living according to the gospel, so I have to write you again? Because we are so messed up. And yet, the same Paul who understood this also said, the church is God's plan. And so join it and give your life to it. So that's what we're to be. Our life together is living proof that God is going to make things whole again. Therefore, the church is not optional. And understand this, King Chapel, as one expression of that, this place is important. Not inherently in and of itself, not because of something we've done particularly here, because the churches around us are important as well. That's why when Andy says, whether you join here or you join down the road, join, join. So you embody the mystery by becoming part of the church because of the who. He is bringing all peoples, all nations together into the church. That's what's stunning. It's not just for Jews, it's for all peoples. Second, the revealed mystery is stunning because of the how of God's redemption. The how. And how does he do it? Verse six, verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise, what? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse four, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is this unity and this restoration and this blessing of all the nations to be saved, how is that going to happen? In Christ Jesus. Jesus is at the center of God's plan to make the world right. This is in and of itself was a mystery, right? All the Old Testament, they're going, okay, God keeps saying he's going to show up and he's going to save. He's going to save, he's going to save, he's going to save. But what does it mean that he's going to show up? And it never, it blew their mind, the idea. It was, it did not even, they could not even fathom the idea that God would become human, would take on human flesh and actually join this world and be slaughtered by this world in order to restore us to God. That is a mystery that we never thought of. And it is stunning. And the mystery that God would, this, this idea that God would come himself into this world to be broken and to reconcile us to God through his body. This is what God has done in Christ Jesus. The answer is that God was not that we go to God, but God comes to us to save us. And this was stunning. That's why it says in Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right, that's stunning as well. Wait, he came to earth? Oh wait, even further, he came to live in us? This, This is beyond anything we can imagine, right? You can't even wrap your head around this. I had a, a membership interview with a six-year-old boy this morning who was professing faith in our church. And I asked him, I was like, so who is Jesus? And, and he, he was kind of like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was his answer. And I was like, you're right. That's the context of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son. He goes, I don't understand that. And I'm like, you're right. I don't either. It's stunning, the idea of three persons in one. It's stunning. It, makes, it, it baffles the mind. You know what also baffles the mind? That the spirit of the living God comes and lives inside of me. That is stunning. That Christ comes down, that Christ lives in me. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2. We preach what? Christ and Christ crucified. That's what we focus on. You may have heard of Arturo um, Toscanini. If you're a classical music lover, 
He, was, um, he gave a concert in the 1950s at one point, and he was one of the greatest conductors of his day, and in fact, maybe in perhaps world history. When he finished one particular concert, it was a Beethoven they were playing. He and the orchestra were playing all Beethoven. It was this Beethoven concert. The audience went absolutely wild. And so wild that they, over and over and over again, they asked for encores, and they gave multiple encores, and finally he was done with the encores. And he finally got the crowd to be quiet, and he turned to the orchestra in the midst of the, as the adulation was heaping down on him and his players, and in the midst of this, of uh, for the crowd and to his orchestra, he said this, I am nothing. Then to the orchestra, he said, you are nothing, but Beethoven, he is everything. And that's what the church does. I am nothing. You are nothing. Christ is everything. And here's the implication for restoration and becoming one. The implication of this in regards to seeking unity and oneness in the church is that reconciliation and unity must begin and center upon and end with Christ. All the sameness in unity that we talk about that we want to happen in the church, guess what? It, that's, we, we can't push that into the world. It actually involves people coming in. We can't teach the world this unity. Our neighborhood, our city is not going to find some restoration to a bliss of a new Eden apart from Jesus Christ. Now, here's why this is important. In an era where we, the, the word du jour is social justice, and I am not one of those who thinks it's a non-biblical concept. It is a very biblical concept. Social is an adjective, not a, not a non-biblical concept. You should seek it. But what it means is this. This is a wisdom principle from the gospel. Where you should emphasize your time is peace and unity amongst God's people. Now, this does not mean that you should not go be a lawyer or pass good laws out in the world because God's common grace happens through seeking justice. But we should have a holy pessimism about what will happen out there, but we should have a holy optimism about what God is doing in here. In other words, you want to seek justice? Seek justice. Become a lawyer get involved, do those things, but emphasize your time amongst God's people. What's wrong with us? What needs to be restored amongst God's people? Yes, do it out there, but do it here. This gives us where we should emphasize our time, how you divide up your time. It is a church that God said that we'll hear that we'll have unity ultimately. The last mystery in this passage is, deals with how. How does, Christ, how does Christ redeem us? How do we sinners, Jew or Gentile, get included amongst God's people? Very last, through the gospel of grace. Through the gospel of grace. And here's why this is, this is stunning for two reasons. First, the gospel is a stunner, of the gospel of grace is a stunner because it's a plan of grace, not of race. It's a plan of grace, not of race. Now, very briefly, the stunner is not that Jew and Gentile alike get into God's people, God, amongst God's people by merit, but what's stunning here is that Gentiles get to enter God's people without becoming Jews, because that's what the Jews want. The greatest debate and the most significant issue in the early church was this. When, Jew, when Gentiles accept Jesus, do they have to become Jewish in order to join and for some reason, why you would laud this, I have no idea. The high point of that was you had to be circumcised. 
But there was all the other questions. Do they have to come to the temple? Do they have to carry out the ceremonial laws? Do they have to keep the laws of Old Testament Israel and the ceremonial laws of Old Testament Israel? And there was this great debate in the church, and it was actually the first church council was in Acts chapter 15, where the missionaries come in from all over the place, and they gather the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and they hash this out, and they finally come out, and they say, no, no, you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. You don't have to take on the cultural trappings of Jewishness and the the, the physical and the cultural manifestations of Jewishness. In other words, Jew and Gentile didn't matter anymore. Being rich or poor didn't matter. Being circumcised or not didn't matter. Whether you brought meat from a particular stand or not didn't matter anymore. It was centered on Christ. Now, how do we apply this in our particular genre, our particular day, right? We don't really have this debate. We're not having this debate. Here's what I would say how we should apply this now. What this means is this, that any outward cultural or ethnic or socioeconomic status or personally, personality traits are not what, one wins, what wins you acceptance amongst God's people. Now you think, yeah, of course. No, <laughs> this is happening all over the place. Now it's usually not stated as deliberately as the Jews were stating it in first century Christianity. But it will, be, it will be felt. It will be unstated. What this means is this. A white person does not need to become ethnically or culturally black or Asian to a member of God's church. And vice versa. In the same manner, a Latino person does not need to become culturally white to be a part of the church. Ben talked about this when he first dove into Ephesians chapter 2. is the kind of first sermon talking about this idea of the church. That what is significant about what is so beautiful about the church and what we've seen over history is that the church of Jesus Christ fits in every single culture. It does not have to put on a particular cultural garb. In other words, Christianity, that's why it's able to go to Asia and to Sub-Saharan Africa and to East Africa and West Africa and to Eastern Europe and to Western Europe and to the United States. And it can take on the cultural garb, but ultimately what it has at its core is Jesus. Jesus. We could take it out of we could take it out of the lang- issue of language, race, culture, and ethnicity. In other words, what this means is you don't have to become an introvert or an extrovert in order to find acceptance in God's house. You don't have to have six kids or zero kids to find acceptance in God's house. You don't have to. And what is it for you? What is it you think, man? If I'm going to be a part of God's people, I got to put this on, this on. And here's the question I would ask for us at King's Chapel: What are the personality traits? or the socioeconomic traits, or the political views, or the family dynamic traits that are either spoken or unspoken barriers to acceptance in this church. What is it? My guess is it has something to do with socioeconomic levels. And also unspoken cultural mores. We must be careful that we are not requiring a cultural circumcision to take place in order for someone to experience full unity and joy of being a part of God's people. That you have to become something else. Yes, there is obedience, but that obedience is not necessarily, we, our various white or African-American or Asian culture does not get to define that obedience the word of God does. I might also say this, do not allow a new guilt to be placed upon you that you need to look like or act like or be like a certain cultural group in order to be a full member of God's church. At the same time, 
at the same time, the gospel will flip your motivations. We are not to pretend or put on the cultural garb in order to find acceptance, but the gospel does give us such freedom and such acceptance and such value that we can actually become a people who are secure and willing to lay aside our ethnic or cultural or personality beauty in order to find unity in mission with other people. In other words, it was Paul who said, I'll become all things to all people that I might win some for the gospel. In other words, it's not a law that you have to become, look a certain way, or be, act a certain way, or have a certain amount of children, or have a certain, amount of, a certain, certain personality to be a part of God's people. All right. But it is, sometimes you lay aside these things in order to love others better. In other words, we could take what Paul said. Paul said, I become all things to all people and apply that to church unity. And Paul could say, I become all things to all people that I might enjoy a reconciled and experience joyous unity amongst all of God's people together. But even more than simply grace over race, the center of the gospel, it is grace over merit. It's a center because it's a plan of grace, not of merit. We would never have imagined that God's plan was not the golden rule because that's what we would have created. That's the system we would have created. The system of redemption, that's what we would have created. The system of redemption is do better. (laughs) That's our system of redemption. But God says there is no mystery in a system of merit. Did you know that? There's no mystery in a system of merit. Here's what's what's not a mystery. If you stink at your job, if you fail to reach uh, the quotas in sales, if you've done a terrible job in production and the boss calls you in and they say, we're letting you go, you go, that makes sense. That is no mystery as to why. I stink at this job. But imagine failing at your job so profoundly and yet the boss calls you into his office and says, you know what, we want to make you president of the business. You go, I'm sorry, what? That's, that's a mystery to me. That would be a mystery. We would never have thought that we would get in by grace. We thought we were accepted by merits. Well, welcome into the people of God, where full acceptance is not based on some outward merit. It is a welcome that is all of God's grace. Are you a sinner? That makes you qualified. That makes you qualified. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. Just in case this sounds like too radically progressive on grace. Here's how an old Puritan kind of type preacher said it. Oh, that you would trust Christ now. I know that there is something which holds you back. And you say, I am not fit. He wants no fitness. Come as you are. Any man is fit to be washed that is stained. Any man is fit to be whole that is sick. Any man is fit to be relieved that is poor. Ah, you have got the fitness in your unfitness. For your unfitness is all the fitness that he wants. But may I come, you say? May you? Yes, if you need the Savior, you may come. The greater the wretch, the welcomer here. Christ loves to save big sinners. And that's, so good. that's such good news because that's all there is, isn't there? The church is the only institution in the world in which the first thing you have to do in order to be accepted is to admit that you don't deserve to be there. That's what the church is. And when a church culture believes that and exudes that, well, we cease to care about all the cultural garb and we become passionate about clinging to one another and welcoming each other and drawing each other in. Now, how does that happen? Understand this, one last thing. Understand that all this theology about mystery, because this has been a fairly theological sermon, I'm sorry about that. 
This, this mystery, this idea that understanding the mystery is essential. It's essential. But it is insufficient for becoming what God has called us to be. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says this. This is the whole end, the back end of the whole focus on the church. The last couple of verses, it says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, we have to understand the mystery and that motivates us to what? To get busy speaking the truth in love so that we might be built up together. Here's how 1 Corinthians 13, 2 puts it even more clearly for us this morning. If I have prophetic powers and understand what? All mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. In other words, you can teach a theological master class on the mystery of the gospel and God's plan of redemption, but if you have not love, that is not incited in you a love for brothers and sisters, then you are nothing. Then you haven't actually gotten it. The longing of Paul's heart in sharing this mystery is that it would result in us loving one another better, that they would speak the truth of God's redemptive purposes over and over and over and over again to one another because we understand that God's plan of restoration is a stunner of God's grace and therefore in love we extend it to other people. That's the call. The point of understanding the mystery is that you would love those who are different from you. The point of understanding the mystery that you got in by grace is so that you can extend that same grace to those who still need to come in. And that those are those other people who are here by grace and they still need grace extended to them week in and week out. Now, at the same time, I also want you to understand here's how significant it is that we are to be seeking to love each other. Understanding the grace of God and the amazing plan of restoration and the work of Christ your experience and this church's understanding of it and the awe of God's plan of redemption, our understanding of it grows as we experience that love firsthand in the church. In other words, understanding the theology should lead to loving each other better, but also it goes the other way. Loving each other better will help you understand the beauty of the theology more. Colossians 2 verse 2 says this, being knit together in love, love's coming first, to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. When we love each other better, we come to understand the mystery of God's grace for us better. Why? Because we put hands and feet to the love of Jesus. In other words, some of you are stunted in your growth and your experience of God's love and grace for you because you're trying to do it all by yourself. And you need to become a, part, become a part of God's people more fully where you experience forgiveness, where you failed. You've, you're part of a body that's so intimate where people actually are offended by you. You know how close you have to get to, well, unless you really smell bad. You know how close you have to get to somebody to be like, oh my gosh, they stink. But that's the intimacy of the church that we would be go, yeah, you stink, but I'm still gonna pull you in. And in that you go, oh my, that's right. This is how God loves me. So yes, let's be a people who understand the mystery so that we might love, but also let's be a people who love so that we might understand the mystery more fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray, um, this, was, uh, this was mystical. <laughs> uh, we, it's, it feels airy. It feels up there. And so, 
Spirit of the living God, I pray that what is I have left formless and void, <laughs> like a pre-creation sort of world that is unclear, that the Spirit of the living God would come and take this mystery and make it real to us, that we would, that we would have light bulbs come on in our head, but not merely intellectual light bulbs, but we would have life light bulbs that we would become a people who passionately move towards each other with love and affection, speaking words of truth in love to each other, extending grace to each other as Christ has extended grace for us, welcoming the nations as Christ has welcomed the nations. And in that, we would come to an even more full understanding of all that Jesus has done. Would you do this? Could you do this in this place, God? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us to the sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.